Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch, mainly art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Obviously, I'm not talking about films today. This is one of my special recap episodes for Sharp Objects. I'm talking about episodes 5 and 6 of the series, the episodes titled Closer and Cherry. And I talk about why this is really becoming one of the best shows of the last few years for me personally. Why I love the show, why I connect so deeply to Camille because of her experiences of grief and trauma and mental illness. I talk about all of that in this episode. I have not read the book, so I just want to be upfront about that, that the way that I talk about the series is from a perspective of not really knowing what is going to happen next. And I'm just trying to share my thoughts and my feelings and what these episodes bring up for me the emotions that really come to the surface for me as I'm watching and I do want to warn you that I talk about sexuality in this episode I talk about self-harm in this episode self-harm is a big part of sharp objects but I do want to give you a warning for that Um, and I do briefly mention rape in this episode. So I want to be upfront about that in case any of those subjects are upsetting or disturbing for you. That is some of the content in this episode. So I just bring you an in-depth analysis of these past two episodes, um, what I'm thinking about, what I'm feeling about them. We see that Camille and Adora's relationship is getting more dark, more disturbing. We are really seeing the darkness of Wind Gap, the darkness of this community. But of course, the central thing for me is always Camille and her story and her experience. And so I'll be talking about all that and why I connect so deeply to this show. So I definitely hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode. Her Head in Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis, and you can also access rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadinfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash herheadinfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd like to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Tyler, Max, David, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all for supporting this podcast. Her Head in Films is listener supported and I intend to keep it that way. If financial support is not an option for you, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes and or Stitcher. Um, you can tell your f- friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can just send an encouraging message to me or engage with me positively on social media. Your messages and, and comments mean a lot to me. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, 
just search for Her Head in Films, and you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So, let's talk about Sharp Objects. So I watch Sharp Objects with my mom, which is a bit ironic because the show is about a very toxic, I would even say violent, mother-daughter relationship. I think Adora is just a very um, horrible character in every possible way um, that we've seen so far, and, and the relationship between Camille and Adora progressively is getting darker and more disturbing and this show is really not afraid to plumb the depths right and it's just really ironic that I watch it with my mom because me and my mother have a wonderful relationship I'm not saying that we don't fuss or that we don't have conflicts or anything like that but I have a profound connection to my mother and I have a very loving and affectionate relationship with my mom and um, we're just really close and we were talking about today after we watched the latest episode she was talking about how for her this is like her number one show of the last few years it's up there for her with like big little lies and different shows that we watch together. And something that I love about television is that because it's a much more immersive experience and you're watching episode after episode, it really creates like quality time with whoever you're watching it with. And I'm not saying that films can't function in that way, but I think with a television series, you you end up spending more time together. You end up spending more time immersed in this fictitious world. Um, and I just love spending that time with my mom. You know, when I think back on some of my favorite television shows, almost all of them I've watched with her. You know, I've watched Big Little Lies with her and The Keepers. And Broadchurch, and we really love detective shows that star women like Happy Valley and Prime Suspect and The Fall. And so television for us is really a form of quality time and of um, just being together and being in one another's company. And so even though this show is very dark and it's about a very violent relationship and toxic relationship between a mother and her daughters... It strangely enough like brings me and my mom together and it obviously makes me more thankful for the mom that I have because I know that other people don't always get a really great mom or a really great dad. You know people have really complicated relationships with their parents and it's even worse if you have a parent who is abusive or who is absent in your life and I was lucky enough that I have a really great relationship with my mom and I had a really great relationship with my dad who died in 2006. Um, because of his death, that is what has made us even closer, is that she's really the only person that I have in the world. I'm someone who is very alone in life and very lonely, and that's why I have this podcast. Some of you listening right now, you may not know much about me. You may not have... Um, 
You may not have listened to other episodes. You're just coming to listen to the Sharp Objects recaps. Um, But I hope that maybe you'll stick around and you'll explore other episodes. It's partly why I'm doing this, this recap series. This is the first time I've ever done this. And I thought a lot of my regular episodes are about art house film. And that can be sort of a really niche, um, specialized kind of area. And I thought maybe if I did these recap episodes, I might get new listeners or different listeners or just bring people in, you know, by talking about a show that's a bit more popular. But this has really been a challenge for me to do these episodes because I do a regular episode already every week, which is about a film, you know, um, the film I covered before uh, this episode was James Ivory's film Morris from 1987. So just about every week I produce a full-length episode that's usually much more than one hour long. And it's been extra work, you know, to do these recap episodes. They're really like extra episodes. So some weeks I'm doing two episodes in one week. And, you know, that's a lot. This is like a part-time thing for me. This is a hobby, a labor of love. You know, I have a regular job and all of that. Um, I didn't realize, I think, how much work it would be once I started. And if you're wondering, well, why does she do two episodes at a time instead of an episode every single week after every single show of Sharp Objects? That's why, because I'm already producing a main episode, which is about a film that I do, you know, different weeks. I do different films, and sometimes I have months where I have themes, you know. Um, Recently, I did a theme where... For the month of July, I talked about Ingmar Bergman films, and he's this really great, famous, important Swedish director. But I just wanted to explain that's why I do two episodes at a time, because it allows me to skip a week, you know, to so I do them every other week just so that my workload is a little bit lighter, because it's a lot to produce two episodes in a week. So, I mean... I still have enjoyed doing this. It's definitely, um, it's been a challenge, but I've really been enjoying it. And I feel like um, I'm going on this journey with this show at the same time that everybody else is, right? You know, a lot of people are so obsessed with this show. And it's sort of uh, fun to be part of that in some way. And to maybe make a small contribution to the larger conversation and discussion that's going on with this show. Um, but, uh, these recap episodes are just very different for me. I usually focus on film instead of television. So it's been really interesting to stick with something, you know, week after week, you know, to talk about the same characters, to watch the story develop. It's very different than when you're watching a two hour film as opposed to watching a series week after week after week. So it's challenged me. I hope that these episodes have been, um, some kind of contribution. I hope that they've been valuable in some way in me adding my own perspective of the show. And, um, we're coming down to the last few episodes and I think things are really going to start to accelerate and things are going to be answered. And I know everybody is speculating about who is the killer, who is the killer, who has done this. Um, there's lots of different suspects and there's lots of different theories, And um, I'm not going to speculate about it, Um, but I do want to talk about the last few episodes, uh, episode five and six, 
what I think about them and what I connected to. Because for me, this show is really emotional because what I connect to, even though it's a crime show, it's a mystery show, and there is a propulsion there in us wondering who killed these girls who is doing this and that's an important part of the narrative but it's not for me the central part of the narrative for me this show is really about trauma it's about memory it's about being haunted and it's also about mental illness and so those are the things about the show that connect with me the most and those are the things I tend to emphasize when I'm talking about the show. But me and my mom are so engrossed in it and absorbed by it. And I think we just, I don't know if my mom said this, but it's like she said, you know, we've been through dark things. We've been through difficult things. And it's true. You know, me and my mom have been through a lot together, especially after my dad died in 2006. I was only 16 years old. And it was the most devastating experience of my life. It worsened my anxiety and my depression. It led me to become agoraphobic to the point where I had trouble leaving the house. And I still struggle with that. I still struggle with all of it. I still struggle with agoraphobia and anxiety and depression. Um, I struggle with a sense of worthlessness. Um, I don't harm myself the way that Camille does but I don't like myself. I don't particularly take care of myself, I guess, the way I should. Or maybe I try to hurt myself in other ways. Um, and I talked about that, in the, I think, in the previous recap episode, where I think some of us hurt ourselves in less visible ways or less, you know, um, gory ways. You know, the way that Camille hurts herself with blood and cutting and it's very visible, you know, it's, it's on her body. And that was something I thought a lot about recently in the last few episodes was we see more of Camille's body. And I'll get to that in a minute, like in the dressing room scene in episode five, where we see her skin marked by um, these words and these scars. And it made me think about how her scars really make her trauma visible and it made me think about how trauma can literally be written on our bodies. But I believe that trauma lives in our bodies and that we carry it with us. I carry the grief that I feel for my father's death. I, I carry the trauma of it because it was catastrophic. And I think that I didn't lose my mind after he died, but I came pretty close like everything changed for me. It was like this switch turned off in my body and in my mind. And I remember when I was told that he was dead, I go back to that moment so many times, too many times, because it was so, that moment in and of itself was so traumatic. To be told that this person that you love and adore is dead. And I'm not religious. I don't believe that there's some other world where I'm going to see him again. It's, this is the end. He is gone. And when I was told that, I feel like I left my body almost. Like I could feel it in my body. Something changed. Something was altered forever. Something was completely shattered. I was shattered. And the rest of my life will be about 
how do I continue living with this? How do I bear this? Because this is unbearable. To me, it's unbearable that he's dead. And I don't know if any of you have gone through loss like that, but if you ever encounter it, it is soul shattering and it is soul destroying and it is body destroying. My trauma is different from Camille's. You know, we actually don't know Camille's trauma right now. We're getting flashbacks. We're getting at times she's young in her cheerleading costume and she's in the woods or things like that. We really don't know what exactly has happened to Camille. But she's also, well, actually, I think we do share a trauma because of the death of Mary and the death of her, her sister, her younger sister. And throughout these last two episodes, people have talked about how after Marion died, Camille lost herself, that something happened to Camille after Marion died. And so I do think, in a way, this film is looking at grief. I don't think grief is Camille's primary trauma, but I think it's one of them. I think that losing her sister was, as it was for me losing my father, it was it was profoundly traumatic. Um, and the way the film works with memory is very interesting too. I'll just, they, I don't know if I'm using the correct technical language because I'm not really good with that when it comes to films or television shows. But what I would call it is montage is where um, there's these very uh, quick cuts when she's in her mind and, and when the memories flash in her mind, whether it's you know, of Marion or whether it's of her in the woods and just different things from her childhood. It's these quick cuts and, and one after the other. I don't know if montage is the correct uh, word for it, but it's like all of these things um, flash across the screen like memories, like they would be inside of Camille's mind. And I remember after the latest episode, I watched it. I don't know, I think I watched it like yesterday or whatever. My memory's terrible. But I went outside, I took my dog outside, um, you know, to for him to run around and use the bathroom and all of that. And I looked down at the sidewalk on the, the stones and all of that um, in my backyard. And I saw this trail of ants that were teeming on the ground. And I thought in that moment, of my father's funeral. I was immediately um, pulled back in time the way Camille so often is in this series. And I was thinking about my father's funeral and about how I was sitting in the chair and there was, we were at the, um, we were at the cemetery and they had put down this green carpet and these chairs and then this tent over us. And I remember sitting there and, you know, my mother's beside me and I still remember her sobbing and crying. And I'm 16 years old and I'm sitting there and I look down and I remember these ants were crawling all over this green carpet at the cemetery. And so anytime I see ants, anytime I see like long strands of ants on the ground, 
I think of that and I think of these ants um, on that green carpet and getting on my shoes and I think of my father's silver casket right in front of me and you know that's my trauma you know that's that will always haunt me his death and what it was like to live it and to live through it and it doesn't end it doesn't end in that moment that you experience it because of you know post-traumatic stress and all that you relive it and your memories are forever inextricable you know they're they're entangled with this so that when I look at ants I think of my father's funeral I think of being in the cemetery I think of you know my body being blown apart by grief and in that moment when I saw those ants I also thought of sharp objects and and the way that memory works and I feel like this show almost captures the process of my own memories <laughs> of the way that I think of life and the way that I think of the past and I don't know it's like this show just makes me so emotional because I feel like Camille you know I just feel some of that pain that she has that damage that brokenness that <sighs> of trying to bear the unbearable you know, and how she has literally taken it out and expressed it on her body. And she's made her trauma visible on her very skin, that her skin has become like this page with words on it, you know, this, this text that can be written in a way. And, um, but what do these words mean? And why did she carve them into her skin? And what is the source of all this? You know, that is, um, that's something that we don't know. We don't know. But let's talk, let's talk about the different episodes. Um, so episode five is called Closer. And it's very fitting because of what we'll hear at the end of the episode. But for me, the central part of this episode was the Calhoun Day. So in Wind Gap, Missouri, they celebrate this really confederate civil war holiday called calhoun day and i was reading and it does not really exist it's not a real holiday that people um celebrate but i am from the south and i can give you some perspective on this and um recently there's been a lot of controversy about confederate statues and we in America are trying to face our past and our very bloody, violent history of slavery that happened during the Civil War. And I am against Confederate statues. I'm from the South, born and raised in North Carolina in a very small town there. And I have very different views than the people I grew up with. I grew up where people said the N-word. I grew up where people had Confederate flags. Right down the road from my house, they did a Civil War battle reenactment. I grew up with that. I did not attend it or ever go to it because I don't believe those things. I am a feminist. I am an intersectional, anti-racist uh, feminist. 
and it horrified me my entire life. I've always had conflicts with living in the South because of the terrible racism that exists here. But racism is throughout this entire country. And that is really important to acknowledge that it's not something that just exists in the South. Because if it only existed in North Carolina and Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama and all those places, Donald Trump wouldn't be in the White House right now. This is something, this is the wound of our entire country, this racism, and we all bear it. But there is a particular relationship with the past in the South that those of us who live here know. And people do celebrate the Confederacy. And they do celebrate these days and these holidays. They do these Civil War reenactments. They carry their Confederate flags proudly, even though they are basically celebrating people who um, wanted to leave the United States and people who wanted to enslave people, you know, enslave black people. This is who they are celebrating. And then they claim that it's about heritage, and it's not. It's about glorifying racists. It's about glorifying hatred. Every I believe the Confederate statues should be torn down. Or if they're not torn down, if it's not possible to tear them down, because these different municipalities and cities have these rules and stuff, at least provide context about the statues and about who these people were and what they believed had nothing to do with states' rights. It had to do with racism and the protection of slavery. So this Calhoun Day in Sharp Objects is deeply disturbing. You know, this is a view of this small town that is troubling, (laughs) that they come out and they celebrate the Confederacy, really, and Emma Um, is in a play where she plays this woman and all that. I really don't want to get into the play and all of that. That's not what I'm interested in talking about. But I think that this Calhoun Day is important. It, It speaks to the town, I think. But what I think is important about this Calhoun Day is that it is held in Adora's backyard. It's, it's in, it's on Adora's property. And she seems she obviously takes part in it so i think it also speaks to the racism in the area she has a black maid they are there celebrating calhoun day and celebrating this confederate holiday thing um so i just think it speaks a bit to the darkness of this town and um the darkness that is often hiding under these places that I don't know, the South gets this reputation as like a a polite place uh, where people are nice and civil and things like that. And just because someone's polite and says please and thank you and ma'am doesn't mean that they can't be racist. And um, it doesn't mean that there's not issues going on under the surface there. There's this idea that, oh, racism doesn't exist anymore. People are nice to each other. Um, Yeah, I guess racists can say please and thank you. That doesn't mean that they're not racist, right? And it doesn't mean that there isn't a problem of racism. And also, we have to get beyond this idea that racism is just burning a cross on someone's lawn or that it's, 
interpersonal all the time, that it's someone saying the N-word to a black person. There is, that obviously is racism, yes, but there is also systemic racism. There is, when a black family tries to go get a home loan, how are they treated? Are they given that home loan? Are they given a higher rate of it? When a black person uh, tries to get a job, how are they treated? How is their name judged just from their resume? When a black person is just trying to navigate the world, go to a restaurant, go to Starbucks, sell uh, water bottles on the sidewalk as like a little girl did recently and and there was a big thing where a woman wanted to call the police because she didn't have a permit you know we've we're hearing more of these stories about just being black and trying to live your life turns into an ordeal and can lead to very violent interactions between people. So there's there's racism on all kinds of different levels. There's this systemic level, there's that personal interaction. But this Confederate holiday is obviously disturbing in a town that does not have a lot of black people in it. There there's not a lot of black characters in sharp objects either. But I think it just speaks to the there's a darkness here. There is something darker at play that on the outside, these towns in the South can seem really nice and all of that, but violence can erupt. It can happen. And in these places, bad and terrible things can happen. Um, no matter what race you are. And obviously in Wind Gap, something horrific is happening. These girls are being killed and nobody knows why. But I think it speaks to maybe just a darker aspect of this town than people want to want to accept. And um, how the town also wants to sort of rewrite history or something or, or deny the darker, bloody aspects of the Civil War and instead put on these white dresses and... Um, pretend like things are how they are not, you know, and that's really disturbing to me. That's what's disturbing in general about the whole thing about Confederate statues is that you literally have people trying to rewrite history and trying to say that it wasn't about slavery. You know, it wasn't about these things. And I'm a big believer in truth and in facts and you don't get to say that. You don't get to make up what the Confederacy was or what the Civil War was. You don't get to change that narrative or just create your own. Um, so that's just my take on it. It's just really disturbing to see Calhoun Day in modern America. And yet you know that all around the South, there are different states that do have Confederate holidays um, officially and unofficially, and that a lot of white people in the South still celebrate these people and celebrate these holidays. And it's it's just a disturbing aspect of modern America. Um, so Calhoun Day also precipitates Camille having to get a dress for the event because everybody dresses up. And of course, because she has the scars on her body, she's not able to wear sleeveless or short dresses. Um, and so there's a really powerful confrontation in the dress shop where um, Camille is basically forced 
to come out of the dressing room in her bra and panties and Emma for the first time sees her scars because up until then uh, Camille had been wearing long pants and long shirts and she had been covering up her scars and um, so Emma sees them for the first time and Adora sees them for the first time in a few years and she didn't realize how bad they were and you know Emma runs away she she sort of leaves she's very shocked and you know Adora has her her reaction that you kind of expect where she says that it's worse than she remembers and that she says that Camille is ruined that's what she says about Camille and she also tells Camille that she's full of spite and that she got that spite from her father we don't know much about Camille's dad and it seems like Camille doesn't know much about him either. The person that Adora is currently married to is Alan and so he's obviously not Camille's father and they have kind of a chilly relationship the two of them but you know the way that Adora again talks to Camille it's always shocking to me it's been shocking to me throughout the series and there's just something very deeply, deeply disturbing about it. There's something disturbing about this woman, you know. And progressively throughout the series, she has just really disturbed me and shocked me as a character. And after Adora leaves, there's just this very powerful moment um, when Camille goes back into the dressing room and she puts like a piece of clothing to her face and she just screams and you just you can feel in Camille everything that she has been through you know of Marion's death of her mother treating her this way I have this sense that you know this is how Camille has been treated by Adora for much of her life I mean how do you go through that day after day of feeling like your mother hates you or your mother resents you um, you can tell that in Camille, all of these emotions are building up and that they're just about to explode at times. And, um, you know, maybe in the past, how she dealt with those explosions was to cut herself, you know, and harm herself because, you know, and, and different characters throughout the, the series have said about Camille that she's delicate, that she's fragile, you know, that she has really just been shattered by Marion's death. And that is something that I really relate to personally. I feel like a very sensitive, soft, emotional person. And I have a hard time dealing with life. I have a hard time coping with a lot of the things that I've been through, you know. And um, I don't cut myself or anything like that, but I just struggle so much. And I can see that in Camille, too. And um, Camille, after that incident, wants to leave. Like, she wants to just stop doing the story. Emma asks her to stay. And then she talks to her boss, um, the editor-in-chief of the paper, who sent her in the first place to go and cover this story. And she says that when she's at home, she always feels like she's a bad person. And he tells her that she's a good person and that sort of placates her and she, she does decide to stay, but she's ready to give it up, you know, to leave. You can tell that she's 
going back into such a toxic environment with Adora. And it's really taking a toll on her. She eventually does get a long white dress from Amma. It's sort of, I guess, something that Amma gives her. And at the Calhoun Day, Amma is in a play. While she's in the play, Bob Nash, who is the father of the first murder victim, Ann Nash, goes and attacks John Keene, who is the brother of Natalie Keene. And Natalie's the second murder victim. A lot of people in the town think that John Keene murdered her. I'm just going to say now, I really don't think either of these men have anything to do with these murders. I don't get that sense at all. I don't get a sense of their involvement in it. And um, so Bob Nash goes and attacks him because everybody thinks that it's Natalie's brother for some reason. A lot of suspicion has fallen on him. A lot of town gossip is about him. And so as that altercation is taking place, Emma runs away. Um, I guess she's scared or whatever, and she runs into the woods and Camille goes after her in the woods and finds her in the shed and this shed has recurred throughout the series the shed where there's these pornographic pictures in them and where Natalie and Anne used to spend time and and Camille herself had gone to when she was a a kid so the shed really recurs and it's this really disturbing place and that's where Emma is And Camille goes and gets her and and brings her home. And the scene, the last scene of the, of this episode is of Camille and Adora sitting out on the porch talking. And I think Adora or something tells Camille not to get close to Detective Richard Willis. And he's played by Chris Messina. And um, Camille says not to worry because she can't get close to anybody and that she won't get close to detective willis and um adora tells her that she got that from her father that her father was cold and he wasn't able to get close to people and obviously this is where the title comes from of closer you know that inability to get closer to people and i relate to that too about camille is this distance she has. She has it in the town itself. She's very distant from the people who live there. She doesn't engage with them much, except to try to write her story and to get information out of the townspeople. But she's at a remove. She's on the outside. She's an outsider, you know, She and to them, she's an outsider too. She's left. She's one of the few who have left the town And she's become a journalist in in the big city, right? And so some of them look at her and are jealous of her. Some of them are in awe of her. Like, ooh, look, she got out. Um, Some probably think that she thinks she's better than all of them. Um, So Camille is this very um, complicated character in that way in how other people view her. Um, Because she did leave Wind Gap. But now she's coming back and she's going to write about the dark side of Wind Gap. The dark side that the town maybe doesn't want other people to know about or doesn't want to face or accept. Um, And in this scene, it's very heartbreaking, but Adora just point blank says it. 
says to Camille that she never loved her. And this took the wind out of me. And this is one of the last scenes. It's not the very last scene. I was wrong about that. This took the wind out of me. Like, I know in this show, the more shocking parts are like the blood and seeing Natalie with her teeth pulled out and things like that. Or seeing the scars on Camille's body or or seeing her, you know, cutting herself after Alice died um, with the screw in her arm. But for me the shocking parts, the parts that shake me and that haunt me and that almost take the breath out of me are these moments between Camille and Adora when this mother says to her child, I never loved you. And, you know, Camille really must have felt that from the time that she was a child. She must have felt that sense of not being loved, of being unlovable. And I understand that too. I was loved by my parents. I was loved by my mother and father. But my extended family, I didn't have a really good relationship with them. And I've said it in other episodes, I did not feel loved by my family beyond my mother and father. So I I understand that sense of not being loved or being unlovable um, obviously I don't know it through a parent and I know that has to be even more devastating because when you're a child, these are the primary people in your life. They're supposed to give you that love and support. So I can't, I can only imagine what kind of damage that did to Camille. And I think when Adora said that, I just thought this woman is dangerous. This woman is, <sighs> There's something wrong here, something seriously, deeply wrong that you can look at your child and say, I never loved you. And so after this scene, Camille goes to Detective Willis and we finally get our sex scene that me and my mom were waiting for. (laughs) We're sick. We were like, as soon as we saw Messina, we were like, we better get a nice love scene between him and Amy Adams because Chris Messina he just gets better with age. I mean, like, seriously, he is gorgeous. He is so gorgeous. I love Christmasina. And so the two of them have sex. And this is sort of, you know, a release for Camille and and something that obviously makes her feel good after such an intense experience with her mother. Like, it just, it took the breath out of me. Like, Scenes like that make me really thankful to have the mom that I do have because I know not everybody gets that. I know some people have really terrible relationships with their parents or with their moms. So episode six is called Cherry. And I really loved the way that this episode opened with Christmas Cena naked in bed. <laughs> I was I was wanting to see more of Messina. Um and we got to see him. <laughs> um, we got to see his butt, and that was nice. <laughs> I do really love how in this show the man is is nude while the woman is fully clothed. That's nice. That's something a little bit different, right? Um, Camille is almost always clothed uh, for obvious reasons, so it's nice to see some a man's body a little bit, right? Um, 
so I did like that opening scene and there is like a development in the story in this episode because Anne's bicycle is found in the pond at the hog slaughtering place that Adora owns Um, I think it's where her wealth comes from is this hog slaughtering business and so Anne's bicycle is found and it's considered like a clue Um, honestly the show is kind of slow in terms of solving the case there's not many clues there's not much information about who could have killed these girls um again it's a show about Camille it's about Camille Adora and Emma and obviously we're going to figure out eventually how they are connected to these girls and to the murder of these girls because we've started to learn that you know Anne and Natalie knew Emma that Adora knew these girls as well um so they are connected to these murders and eventually we're going to find out how all this comes together the show to me feels like this puzzle and we don't always know what pieces fit together we don't know how the pieces are going to fit together and I wouldn't say that I'm obsessed with putting those pieces together personally you know I'm not sitting here thinking oh who who did this murder who did this I don't know to me it's much more just about learning about Camille's story and and looking at her experiences and and how she deals with coming back to Wind Gap and um Alan and Camille have sort of a chilly conversation where Alan, Adora's husband, is starting to worry about the effect that Camille is having. And Adora is getting upset about things. And Alan is a very strange character. He's very removed from everything. He listens to old music a lot. And he wears these... um, he, He wears very proper clothing you know and um he always has like a jacket draped over his shoulders um he's very preppy in the way that he dresses he's almost well him and adora both dress and act like they're in another time and i think this sort of connects to calhoun day too is that these are people almost frozen in time they're like frozen in the 1950s you know frozen decades ago and they're not really in the present, you know. But he is very removed from things. But he, he's not against going to Camille and saying, you're going to have to leave if you keep upsetting Adora. But he also reveals to Camille that Adora's uh, own mother used to come into her room at night and pinch her. That Adora's own mother inflicted pain and was a hurtful person and so I guess this is supposed to be a clue possibly to why Adora is the way that she is is that perhaps there was some abuse in her life when she was growing up but when he talks to her and tells her that she needs to leave and stuff it made me think about how I guess technically Camille has come home right but for Camille home is never home and she never feels at home in the house with Adora I don't think she ever feels like she belongs there and you can tell that with Alan asking her to leave if she doesn't you know stop upsetting Adora 
that she really isn't wanted there and she is not welcome there because that's part of what home is it's the place where you belong it's the place where you feel you feel welcome and she doesn't have that a big part of this episode is the party that Camille goes to with Emma and so the two of them go to this party and Emma is with her friends and um one of the girls tells Camille that she should talk to Adora if she wants to know more about Natalie. And so that's another clue to us that Adora knew Natalie and that she might have information about that. In this episode, Detective Willis, Chris Messina, is also asking people about Camille. He's trying to figure out why she was in a psychiatric hospital he doesn't quite know why at the calhoun day thing um he had actually gone and adora had talked to him a little bit and said that camille is like a rare rose but not without its thorns or something like that and she was talking about how camille is delicate and things like that And he's sort of digging a bit into Camille's past and her history. And he's interested in why why she has been in the mental hospital and things like that. Um, So he wants to know more about Camille. Just like we as viewers want to know more about Camille. Because a lot of her past is still very mysterious. And is really only being revealed to us through these, these flashbacks. These montages these quick cuts of memories of moments in her life um and so that's a big part of this show as well it's like what exactly happened to her like she talks to this guy at one point who is like the drama teacher at the school and he apparently was involved in something that was done to camille in the woods And she gets very upset about even talking about it. She says, well, I've forgotten about it, so you should forget about it. And it's tied to those memories where she's in the cheerleading costume and she's in the woods as a teenager and he's there. And we know that he has probably done something to her, that something happened in the woods to her. And we don't exactly know. We have our guesses, you know, that she was most likely probably raped, but we don't know for sure. We're only getting these flashbacks and he says that he feels terrible about what he did and that it haunts him. So something happened in the woods, but we do not know yet. But Camille is at this party with Emma and she ends up taking like a drug. Her and Emma take drugs together and there's this really beautiful scene where they're just roller skating like it's like the middle of the night and they're just roller skating through the town and it echoes what we saw in the first episode I want to say where Camille is a teenager and she's with a friend and they're roller skating down the road and they put their arms out and that's kind of what she mimics um, when she's roller skating with Emma and again it's like it's a reminder that the past is present in so many ways that in our lives things recur and things come up from our past like I talked about earlier with the ants you know seeing the ants and I'm transported to that moment at the cemetery and it's often the same with Camille that when she sees things they trigger these flashbacks they trigger these memories and the emotions that are connected 
to those memories and those flashbacks. Because I don't think you can ever turn that off. I don't know how you do. You know, because when I saw those ants, I immediately was sort of flooded with the emotions that I felt on that day in, in 2006, 12 years ago now. Um, and, you know, Camille lost Marion when she was a teenager, too. So I, that, I think that's why I feel such a deep connection to Camille. Or I feel such a deep connection to the show is because I know what it's like to lose somebody as a teenager. And I know what that can do to you. And I get a little frustrated when people talk about kids um, and they talk about how resilient children are. That, oh, they're strong, they're resilient. Maybe they are, but I think when you're a kid, I think you, maybe you are more resilient. Maybe you are stronger. I don't know. But I think there, I don't know how to explain it. I think there are things that happen to us in our childhoods that, um, and maybe I talked about this in another episode. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but whatever. Um, that these things, it's like they go dormant you know, and they don't come back until later. So maybe, maybe something traumatic happens when you're a kid or a teenager and you just sort of press it down. You press that pain down, you get through it, you survive it. But later on, it surfaces. Later on, it becomes harder to deal with it and it does haunt you. So in that way, I don't know if we're more resilient I don't know. I don't know if children are resilient. I th- I think we are can be very damaged when we're children or when we are teenagers, and that that can stay with us and follow us the rest of our lives. And I feel like that's what happened to me. I feel like a mess. I feel so broken and so shattered inside, and I don't know how to cope with it. And I don't know what to do about it. And I really almost envy other people who are not as broken as I am, who lose somebody and don't fall apart. You know, there are plenty of people who have lost a parent when they're a teenager. There are plenty of people who have gone through these experiences or or the experiences that Camille went through even. And they don't end up like this. They don't carve on their bodies. They don't cut themselves and hurt themselves for me, it's like they don't become agoraphobic, you know, and have panic attacks and have terrible depressive episodes. They're able to go through it and to live and to keep living and survive and to be okay. And so there's this whole other level of shame that comes with it. That, God, I can't be like other people. I can't go through this and be okay. I I can't get myself together. I'm always a mess. I'm always hurting. I'm always in so much pain inside. What do I do? What do I do with this pain? And I don't know. I don't have the answer. You know, I'm 12 years into this and I don't know. I have good days and I have bad days. There's so much under the surface of Camille. There's so much hurt and pain that so many of us carry with us and live with. And a lot of people in this town have hurt and have pain. You know, when you're taking drugs, when you're getting hooked on substances and and drinking and stuff, that's pain. Um, So I kind of love these scenes where Camille is free. You know, I sort of felt it when she was 
having sex with when she has sex with detective willis i think there's a freedom there where there's a bit of an escape or a bit of a relief and i sort of feel it when she's listening to music when she has her earbuds in the music sort of takes her away or i feel it when she's rollerblading on the road and she has this substance in her system in her blood whatever this drug was that Emma gave her but you can tell that it makes her feel good and that she almost has she has a high that she is high from it and there's these lot these moments of lightness for Camille because things get very dark and heavy in this show but then she has these moments where she seems a bit more free and where she has an escape or a relief from the pain that you can tell that she feels but even in these moments of freedom, the past is there, you know, and, and it shows up and it flashes back because she's remembering things. She's always remembering, always. We are, I think we are remembering creatures or maybe it's just me and Camille. You know, I just live in the past. I think of the past a lot. I remember things and Camille is always remembering even as she's skating, even as she's high. Um, and I love uh, the time, the moment when Emma and Camille join hands and they're going around in a circle. This is when they've gotten home and they're like laid out on the lawn because <laughs> they're high and they're just going round and round and round. And it's like something that you would have done when you were like a little girl, right? When you were a little kid and Emma, Emma is desperate to get out of Wind Gap. And she talks about it. Before they started to go round and round, she talked about how she's so bored. You know, that there's nothing to do in this town. That she wants to get out of it. That the girls don't like her. And when she's going round and round with Camille and they're doing that, she asks Camille to take her back with her to the city. She's just desperate to get out. She's desperate to escape this life, to escape Adora, to escape Wind Gap, to get out the way that Camille did. But even though Camille got out, Camille is not free of what happened to her in Wind Gap. She's never free of it. It always is there weighing on her. That history the history is always something that she is bearing, you know, this burden on top of her. So even though she got out, did she really get out? Did she really escape? Because Wind Gap is always in her mind. She's always in Wind Gap, in her memories. The things that she remembers from that time in her life. And the impact it had on her and the damage that it did to her. And she may leave Adora's house, but she is never really free of Adora or the pain that Adora has caused her. And while they're going round and round, all of a sudden, instead of seeing Emma's face, she sees the faces of all these dead girls. Because that's what this show is about, is all these dead girls. Marion, Anne, Natalie, Alice. Will there be another dead girl? All these dead girls haunting Camille because Camille is always haunted by the dead and Emma and Camille are inside at the very end laying on the bed and Camille sees a ghost is it Marion I think it's Marion 
And she tells Camille, it's not safe here for you. And that's how it ends. Adora's house is never safe for Camille. It's never home for her. It's never a place of safety for her. Wind Gap is not a safe place for her. And so that is an important message. It's not safe here for you. But who is the danger? Who is the killer? Who <coughs> Who is the person or the people that Camille should fear? We don't know. But we're going to know. And we're going to find out eventually. And um, this show just... I think it's a masterpiece. And I was telling my mom, you know, uh, I think Amy should get the Oscar for this. <laughs> like recently the Oscars, they've made some big changes, right? And they've added this popular film category. And I was telling my mom, you know what? If they want to change it and they want to expand it, add a television category. <laughs> because honestly, a lot of these TV shows that have been coming out, Big Little Lies, Sharp Objects, the keepers that's more of a documentary but whatever um they're better than a lot of films that i see a lot of like mainstream or even independent independent you know american film these shows are so well done so well written so many ideas and interesting things in them they're doing much more interesting things and i know a lot of people liked david lynch's twin peaks revival recently on showtime i have not watched twin peaks so i can't say anything about it or a show like um pose on fx or even damn a stand-up special on netflix called nanette by hannah gadsby all of these things you know they're not films um you know we tend to put this prestige on films you know that that is the true art form but I think with all the things that I've just mentioned, all the shows are, I think, changing that. That the landscape is changing in terms of what we consider art and what we consider great. And it's sort of amazing to watch it happen. I mean, I know the Oscars are not going to add a television category. But it's still crazy to me that Amy Adams has not won an Oscar not that I take the Oscars that seriously or care about them all that much, but, you know, they still mean something, right? I do think if if they're going to greatness, if they're going to be about who's the best, Amy Adams is one of the best. And I think she will continue to do amazing roles. And I think the work that she's doing in Sharp Objects is tremendous and breathtaking. And, um... It's been so impressive to watch her do this role. And um, she should definitely get an Emmy, right? And don't the Golden Globes, do they have a television section? I mean, I think they do. Give it to Amy Adams, for the love of God. Um, she should win all the awards. This show should win all the awards. Me and my mom were talking about that. Like, just give it to this show. Because um, this is... This is a deep show. This is a meaningful show for me personally. And that's what I've been trying to talk about. Is the way that it intersects with my own life. And my own emotions. And why it matters to me so much. So. 
I hope that you found some value in this recap episode of episodes five and six of Sharp Objects. I really appreciate you listening and I will follow this show till the end. So I hope you'll listen to the next recap episode that I produce. And if you're new to Her Head and Films, check out some of my other episodes about really great cinema. So thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films and television shows. Bye for now.